as ISIL has marched across Iraq, it has waged a ruthless campaign against innocent Iraqis. And these terrorists have been especially barbaric towards religious minorities, including Christian and Yazidis, a small and ancient religious sect. Countless Iraqis have been displaced, and chilling reports describe ISIL militants rounding up families, conducting mass executions, and enslaving Yazidi women. Today we hear from one of these women. My guest this week is Farida Khalaf. Well, that's the name she uses to protect her identity after being enslaved by ISIS. Farida is a Yazidi girl from a village called Kocho, which lies at the foot of Mount Sinjar in northern Iraq, with the Syrian border 50 kilometres to the west and the city of Mosul 100 kilometres to the east. The Yazidi religion is an ancient minority in predominantly Muslim Iraq, And when ISIS seized the city of Mosul in June 2014, Farida, her family, friends and neighbours feared that it wouldn't be long before Kocho was also under attack. On the 3rd of August 2014, ISIS fighters began the systematic slaughter of Farida's people. Just under two weeks later, on the 15th of August, they surrounded Kocho, rounding up its inhabitants and killing every man and boy. And the women? They took them to be sold tortured, raped and enslaved by their organisation. This podcast episode marks the six-year anniversary of the Yazidi genocide. Although there has been some high-profile recognition of the Yazidi plight, there's still a long way to go before justice is done. The voice you just heard was Barack Obama talking about the Yazidi situation, and here's a clip of Angelina Jolie doing the same. When the so-called Islamic State attacked the Yazidi community in Iraq in 2014, They abducted, enslaved, and tortured thousands of women and children. Many children were murdered, but nearly 2,000 have returned. Many suffered post-traumatic stress, anxiety, depression. They experienced flashbacks and reoccurrent nightmares that are typical of children who have experienced trauma and abuse. Many of the children witnessed the murder of their relatives and the rape of their mothers. One doctor who has provided medical care for Yazidi women and girls said that almost every girl she had treated between the ages of nine and 17 had been raped or subjected to other sexual violence. In some cases, the victims were girls under the age of nine. Today you will hear this firsthand. Farida shares her insanely harrowing story from a simple life in Kocho to mass rape, beatings and abuse at the hands of ISIS. Amazingly, Farida managed to escape and has gone on to write a book about her experience called The Girl Who Beat ISIS. She now lives in Germany where she is an advocate for Yazidi women globally. This episode is dedicated to every Yazidi who lost their life, experienced torture or continues to live under ISIS control. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world. 
our worldwide tribe. I was introduced to Farida by a good friend of mine, Adrian, a filmmaker who has been documenting the stories of Yazidi women for the past year. I had a chance to catch up with Adrian about this podcast and I wanted to share his words before we get into Farida's story. Adrian also refers to another Yazidi girl that some of you may have heard of, Nadia Murad. Nadia was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2018 after becoming a voice and a face of women who have survived sexual violence at the hands of ISIS. Whereas the majority of women like Nadia and Farida do not want to be named or identified, these two girls have spoken out, leading to an increased global recognition of the genocide of the Yazidi people. Tell me, Adrian, how you first got involved in the Yazidi story. So I have a very clear memory of the summer of 2014, I saw a headline in the Telegraph, which just said the mountain of death, which is like a very arresting headline. And that was referring to uh, ISIS attacking Sinjar and all of the Yazidi community there escaping up the mountain and they were stranded on the mountain. So that always stuck in my mind. I always followed the story because of that. There are hundreds of very important issues in the world, but I think violence against women is is one of the biggest it's such a cancer in society it's the root of of many many issues and that's something i've always wanted to address in my work and it felt to me like the uh, the plight of the yazidi women who were specifically targeted by islamic state who who were kept captive and brutalized that just felt to me one of the most explicit instances of violence against women And I always thought if they don't receive justice, if their community doesn't receive the attention that uh, acts of this atrocity require, then there's no way we can maybe address the other issues of violence against women, which might not be as brutal, but still very serious. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's something I always wanted to address. And then luckily through a few uh, kind of personal connections, I got to meet some people who were working on this stuff. And that's really how it all came about. So what was the first experience of you meeting survivors of sexual violence? So last summer, myself and my colleague, Alice Eady, we went out to Germany to work with our now good friend, Saeed. He's a Yazidi himself, who's a member of the community, and he's been helping survivors ever since he settled in Germany and got refugee status in Germany. He helps them with their translation, but he's been helping them with their everyday logistics about where they're going to live and how they're going to survive in Germany, but also with the prospect of any kind of legal cases and prosecutions against Islamic State operatives. Mm-hmm. And Saeed had arranged for us to go and meet a group of survivors who um, are now in Germany to film them and take pictures and to let them tell their story. 
And I think the only way that he could do that was because he has got such a close relationship with them and he's got their trust. I was nervous going into that scenario because I know what they've been through. Um, but having Saeed there meant that they were relatively comfortable welcoming us. And we were also prepped beforehand by a, a lady called Sarah Whitaker, who's a psychologist who specifically works with people who've suffered sexual violence in conflict and, and gone through that trauma. We were careful about what to ask them because there is this issue of re-traumatizing um, mm -hmm. survivors and how to avoid re-traumatizing them, which seems incredibly difficult because how does someone tell their story without going through what happened to mm -hmm. them? And that can be horrifically damaging for them. So Sarah would talk to us a lot about that. But also Sarah was talking about our reactions. So when someone like Farida, for example, tells her story and the horrific things that happen to her, it's almost kind of natural to wince or to, I don't know, lower your eyes or to have some kind of reaction. And she was like, you can't do that. Like that brings on like a feeling of shame for them, which they already feel. I remember so well you calling me after that first trip and it's like that memory is frozen in history for me because I remember exactly where I was and where I was walking to while we were chatting because of what you were telling me about these survivors. I mean, do you remember how you felt coming back from that trip? Yeah, I mean, I remember we had this really intense schedule over a few days where we were going from place to place and we were kind of physically tired because of that. But I think just being in close proximity to them, like the same distance I am from you now, hearing their story and also seeing the pain and the trauma within them had a real effect on me and I think Alice as well. I remember coming home, I just felt really tired for like a week. Normally after, you know, a couple of tough days, you sleep for a day or two and you feel okay, right? But I just felt really tired for a week and... I actually spoke to a friend of mine who's a journalist who, who's covered many difficult situations. And she went, yeah, like I feel like that a lot of the time. As much as you can read these things, and, and I'd certainly read details of these cases before I was there, actually sitting in front of the person who's been through it and you hear the actual, you know, what they actually went through and what they were feeling, it's, um, it's, it's painful in its own way. Um, I can't even imagine what it's like for them to have lived it. And I'm, I feel like they live it every day now, right? Because it's they're kind of tagged by what happened to them. So that trip to Germany was the first time that you met Farida, right? Exactly, yeah. Tell me about her and that experience. Well, I think I was just left with complete admiration and awe for her. You know, like I said, I was always nervous going to meet them because I thought, are they going to be comfortable around me? Like they don't know me. And, and even though I was with Saeed, Farida was so welcoming. You know, she seemed like so kind of smiley and happy. And then she told her story in just a very matter of fact way, as if this is something that happens to lots of people, which is kind of incredible in itself. Also, I mean, Farid is a great example of this, but, but some of the others as well, the way they've taken on the responsibility of telling this story and, mm. and leading the community. I think one thing we took away from it all, and I talked to Saeed a lot about is, you know, Iraqi society, like many societies, well, all societies are very patriarchal, right? Very dominated by men. Women are as oppressed as anywhere else in the world. 
And here the Yazidi women were specifically targeted by Islamic State as if they were not human. They were treated as if they were not human, as if they were the lowest of the low. And yet now it's all of these women. Nadia is the great example of this, but Farida is the same. They have become the leaders of the Yazidi community. Everyone around the world knows the Yazidi community through Nadia, now through Farida. They're speaking at international conferences. They're leading international organisations and advocating for their rights, for women's rights, for the elimination of violence against women. That is incredible. They were targeted. They're now the leaders. I, I can't even imagine how much strength it takes to turn around your pain and trauma and use it as this, like, agent for change. That's the way I felt after meeting Farida. I was like, wow, like, if me or anyone else, or the, the micro problems we go through, if we can take inspiration from her, that would be an amazing thing. It gives me goosebumps when you say that. And, you know, Nadia Farida telling these stories has had a positive impact on getting the Yazidi story to an international level what do you think you are aiming to do with the stories that you've collected and what's the impact that you hope to have well the Yazidis have been through so many genocides through the centuries there has to be a point where the local community in the Middle East and the international community have to stop them being targeted Religious freedom is something that every government talks about. Very few like back that up. There has to be a point where genocides all over the world are prosecuted. People have to be held accountable for what they do in the hope that it doesn't happen again. I think that's where it's so powerful that Nadia and Farida and these guys go and speak to world leaders, governments, international organisations. But there has to be a... Um, action to back this up um, and as we sit here at the moment there are still no Islamic State operatives who have been prosecuted for these war crimes I hope that there will be I know I know that's something Saeed is working on mm-hmm. but you know why does the Jewish community put so much effort into memorials to Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen and the Second World War because they know if people don't remember these stories it'll happen again and we're currently witnessing a huge rise in anti-Semitism so the Yazidi people have never really had their story told. It's forgotten. So if this one's forgotten as well, the worry is that in a few years' time, there'll be another militia that will come at the gates of Sinjar or somewhere else and commit these atrocities. So I think we have to let as many people know what happened, the horror of what happened, the horror of what happened because the world looked away and we have to work really hard to make sure it doesn't happen again. And Farida and Nadia and all of these people are leading that. And I really, really hope it results in some some action. So Farida speaks multiple languages, but as English isn't one of them, we needed a translator for this conversation. Also, because she lives in Germany and our lovely translator Balsam was in Poland and I was in London, the three of us arranged to record this episode via a Zoom call. I've only ever spoken one-on-one with a guest on this podcast so far, and it's usually face-to-face. But these two girls made me feel instantly at ease, and as we started the conversation, it just felt like three girls catching up with each other. Just to be super clear, the voice speaking Karamanji Kurdish is Farida. The voice speaking in English is Balsam, our translator. I've cut out most of the Karmanji Kurdish parts because I'm guessing most of you won't understand them, but I thought it was important to still include Farida's voice. 
Balsam goes between speaking in the third person and speaking in the first person, which might be a little confusing at times, but she is solely referring to Farida's story and journey throughout. Have you guys met before? Actually not. This is also our first time. Cool. Well, I'm so grateful to you both for doing this. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. You are welcome. I think it's important, especially with the 3rd of August coming up, that yeah. we make as much noise about it as possible and that as many people know exactly. about it as possible. Absolutely. Cool. Mm. Well, maybe let's get started, Balsam. Okay. Maybe you can get Farida to give us a little introduction to who she is. Okay. As Farida Khalafa. My name is Farida Khalaf. I am from a village called Kocho and I am an AZD woman. And do you feel okay about sharing your story with us today? Because I can imagine it's a very hard thing for you to do and I just want to tell you that I appreciate you for doing so. She's saying that of course she will tell her story but she cannot go through into all of the details because it's going to be a lot of time. I totally understand. I actually read her book twice and I really loved hearing about her life in Kocho in the mountains of Iraq and I thought she described that very well and maybe she can tell us a little bit about life there before anything changed. You know, I, lo- I know that she loved maths and cooking. Life growing up would be a great place to start. Before 2014, our lives were very simple. Everything was going well. We did not care about status. We did not care about getting the rich or whatever. We just had a simple life and we liked it. I was a student in the 12th grade, which in Iraq is called the 6th grade. And my brother was in university. My father was working in the army. My other brothers were at school. So we were happy. And this was all before 2014. Can you tell me a little bit about what it meant to be Yazidi in predominantly Muslim Iraq? Again, before 2014, we had the normal life. It was natural. We were living naturally. We had simple problems. For example, Muslims wouldn't eat our food. The problems were as big as this, nothing really significant. But then after ISIS came, then the problem started to escalate. But even then, we only had problem with ISIS and what they were doing to us, not the Muslim community. Let's talk about when they came. I know that it was the 15th of August in 2014 when they came to your village and increasingly they've been getting closer and closer. Can you tell me a little bit about that time when things began to change and eventually they did make it to your village? They came to our village on 15th of August. First of all, they came and they put us all in a school in Kocho. They put the women upstairs and the men downstairs. They took all the belongings that we had except our IDs. We kept our IDs. Then they asked us, who wants to convert to Islam? And all the men said no, and all the women said no. We said, this is our religion. We are Yazidis. We grew up like this. We do not want to convert. And that's when they actually started killing them. They started killing the men. Approximately 450 men, including a lot of the men of her family, brothers, uncles, father. Those people were killed. And then all the women were then transferred to another place. 
And in that building, then they start separating women again, according to the ages, the younger women and the older women. They picked 100 women who were too old, according to their standards of what they wanted, and they killed them. Also, they, uh, the women who were pregnant were killed with the old women, even though these children had done nothing wrong. They were fetuses in the mama's belly, and they still died. How did that feel to experience and to see? It was a very hard feeling. I kept asking myself, why? Why would this happen to us? What have we done? What have I done to anybody to, to, to deserve this? We as pray, first of all, for everybody else in the world, then for ourselves. Our prayer starts. God protect all the other nations and religions, and then we pray for ourselves. We have always been peaceful, and we have not hurt anybody. So it was a hard feeling, not understanding why do I have to go through this, and why would this be my reality? What happened next? Where did they take you? We were 150 young girls in this building and in that building then they divided us to three parts for the city Mosul, the city Tlafar as well as for Sham, Sham which is in Syria Mm -hmm. and 47 girls were prepared to go to Sham in Syria and Farida was one of them. In that city ISIS men would come and then they would pick one whatever they want randomly and take her. Farida had been taken across the border into neighbouring Syria, to a slave market where ISIS fighters would come and choose the girls they wanted to buy. In her book, Farida writes that the men used the words fresh goods to describe them when they arrived. In this next part, when Balsam, our translator, uses the word captivated, replace it with captured. And then they took us to another city. We did not want to go, but we were beaten and were taken by force. Throughout the journey, we also met other Yazidi women who were captivated as well. We were placed in a dark room. We had no idea if it's daytime or nighttime. It was very dark. We were sold to somebody there, and then he sold us to somebody else, and we were still in that room, not knowing what time of the day it is or what's going on. We were sold over and over different times. I tried to commit suicide. I cut my wrists hoping to die. But that did not happen. I was taken to the doctor and even the doctor was trying to captivate me and enslave me. What I know about doctor is they are supposed to help us and help us recover and have a healthy life. But this was one of the very horrible experiences that I had to go through. This was the hardest part for me, going through this and meeting that doctor. In Germany, I am now doing a training with a dentist to be a dentist assistant but i cannot get over the trauma that i experienced back then and i always whenever i see a doctor that's what i think about because the doctor was associated with isis so he was also not helping you right yes he was also a doctor with isis all throughout the journey everybody that i met was a part of isis I cannot even tell you how many times we were placed to different places. It was happening all the time. I tried to commit suicide many, many times. It wouldn't work. 
I was beaten, my head was bleeding, I couldn't see. I was with another girl who was my friend and we were being constantly beating. We were like, just like toys in the supermarket when a kid goes and picks for it, for us. Actually, we were like animals, just like animals. We could, we could be sold and bought with money. And no matter how much I try to explain to you how it feels, I could never, never tell you exactly the experience with word. It was absolutely ugly. Tell me about your friend, Evan. You wrote about her a lot in the book and it was so beautiful how you stuck together and looked after each other. Where is she now? We were very close. We still are very close. We actually lived through this together and we ran away and escaped together. She also lives in Germany, but in a different city, but we always talk all the time and she's doing good. Do you think it was the fact that you two were together? Is that where you got your bravery and your strength from? When I read your book, it was the strength and the bravery that you showed that was just so apparent to me. And I have so much admiration for that. And I'd love to know where you drew that from. What happened to me and my friend is something I would not wish on anybody. People die once, but we were dying every day. We were wishing to die, but it was not happening. We did give each other strength. I saw her being beaten up. She saw me being, being beaten. But we gave each other strength and decided we have to do something. We have to get out of here. We always talked about how we could manage to get out of here one day. But again, that I wish nobody else have to go through this ever. There was also a nine-year-old girl with me. I was 17, she was nine, but she still would call me mom. I was beaten up for her sake so many times, and I, I promised her, if I ever get out of here, I will take her with me, no matter what. She said that her father is still alive, and I told her, I could never be reunited with my father again, but I will help you get reunited with your father and I actually did when I escaped I took that girl with me and I got her to, to her family with me when we escaped let's talk about your escape Frida because that is a part of the book again that stands out to me that you actually managed to escape and that you were kind of the leader of that right but <laughs> As she mentioned before, her dad used to work in the army. She actually, uh, her dad actually worked on the border with Iraq and Syria. So her dad was known, and all of those people with ISIS actually knew who he was. And they told her that you are his daughter, this person's daughter, and they kept calling her dad a kafir, which means infidel. So Farida's dad was known to ISIS for being in the Iraqi army. If that part was unclear, the ISIS fighters referred to him as a kafir, meaning infidel. You are that kafir's daughter and we're going to kill you. They told her that the next day she would have been killed. She was together with eight girls locked, including her friend Evin and the young girl. She said, I told my friends I'm going to go. I can no longer do this. I'm going to die anyways. Whether I stay with her, I go if it's tomorrow, it's today. If it's on the way, I'm going to die. I don't like what's the point of waiting here that evening they took two of the girls we waited until 1 a.m hoping that they will return them so we can all go together unfortunately they did not return them so after midnight we decided to go we had to go 
We didn't go into the details of the escape in our conversation, but in her book, Faruda explains the elaborate plan that she concocted over time, stealing a mobile phone from one of the men whilst on her cleaning rounds, then tricking the guards into thinking that the door of the girl's container was locked. The girls chose their night to escape carefully, when a few horrible factors aligned in their favour. The camp was quiet as many of the men were engaged in fighting that day and the guards left behind in the camp were distracted by the two girls that they had taken the opportunity to spend the night with. started walking. It was midnight and it was dark. My feet were bleeding from walking and because we were captivated and we did not walk for a very long time, my body was so weak. So we were not, it was hard to bear with all the pain. And at some point the dogs actually started following us and those dogs belonged to ISIS and we had to run from that as well until it was the early hours of the morning and we knew we can't be out until now. We have to hide ourselves or they're going to find us because the sun is already coming out. We found an abundant house and just a house alone and nothing else was surrounding the house and we waited. As she explains what happens next to Frida, our translator, Balsam, slips into third person here. I hope it's still clear that she's talking about Frida and the girls that she was with. They were in an abandoned building, but from the, that building, they could see another house that people actually lived in. And they were hiding in the bathroom from the abandoned building's house. And she decided to go and ask the other house. They waited and waited to see if ISIS members will go and come back from that house or not. She said, no, no ISIS members, nobody was coming and going. So she decided to actually go to the house and talk to them and ask for help. They also had a mobile that they stole from ISIS with them. So she told the girls, you keep the mobile and you see if they, if they don't let me come back, you escape or run. And if they help us, then that would be good. She says, the young girl also decided to come with me. She said, we have been together all the way. I am not going to leave you alone. So she and the young girl actually went to the, to the door of the house and talked to them. The man opened the door and he said, I am not with ISIS. And I, I work in a factory near them and we are just like you. We are just like you, oppressed, and we don't know how to, how to escape them. And the man let them in the house, and they were at his house for three days. And actually, while they were walking through to this place, there were also strikes in the army, and ISIS were in conflict, so there was also armed fight going on at the same time. So finally, you were shown some humanity. But what I'm really interested in is in that four months that you were held hostage under ISIS, did any of the men ever show you any humanity during that time? Because what I find so difficult to understand is how people can do that to other people, to young girls. I did not see any humanity with ISIS. If there was humanity, all that happened to us would not have, have happened to us. That man who helped me was not an ISIS member. His father actually told me, are you from Shingal? I said, yes. He said, we have had a lot of friends who were Yazidis, who have ate a lot of meals in Yazidi house. They have helped us in many situations. So like they probably wouldn't have helped us at as well if they didn't know any other Yazidis, but they know what kind of people we are. That's why they decided to help us. 
from that man's house, I called my uncle and I told him to send somebody for us. He he did not believe that I was that I was Farida. He thought I'm dead. They heard the news that Farida was one of the people who killed. Apparently, ISIS, they said they killed Farida. They sent two smugglers to, to save us because there was one checkpoint from that city. If they pass it, then that's it. They can go back to Iraq. And that was the hardest checkpoint to pass. Had to pay these smugglers uh, 30,000 US dollars to actually be like, wow. smuggle them out. They, ISIS captured two smugglers, the first two who went to rescue them. Uh, the third one who had a big truck uh, managed to get them out. So you were smuggled out of the area. And let's talk about being reunited with your mom, right? And your sisters and the, some of the rest of your family. So when she escaped, her mom was still captivated. Two of her brothers were also still captivated. And her dad and two brothers were killed. She had one brother left. She was just hoping that she will find anybody from the family still alive. So when she escaped, she only reunited with her brother, who was 15 and also managed to escape. So only her one brother was free that she could connect with, but then her mother was freed not that long later, right? Actually, my mother uh, escaped six months after. For six months, Ferida and her brother were living in a tent in a refugee camp. And after six months, they, they re- reunited with their mother. How did that feel? I first met my mother for the first time. I was very happy and I was very sad at the same time. I was living in a very horrible situation in the refugee camp with my brother. Although our ankles were there, but we still felt like we were all alone and we were both minors, so we couldn't have any of our official papers ready. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. And when my mom escaped, it felt like we finally have somebody but the saddest part was my father is no longer there. My brother is no longer there. We knew they are not coming back, but it still feel good that our mother is going to be with us and we can be a family again. Could you talk to your mom and the rest of your family who are still alive? Could you talk to them about what had happened to you during this time? At the beginning, I could not tell them anything. And they didn't even ask because they were also captivated by ISIS and they also saw what's happening there. So, of course, I was too overwhelmed to tell them anything that happened with me. And they, again, they knew how it was because they went through the same thing. And my brother was too young, for example, so I couldn't really open up about all of this with him. Let's talk about how you ended up going to Germany. So there was a program in Baden-Württemberg. Baden-Württemberg. So there was a program in Baden-Württemberg, which is a German state, to bring 1,100 Yazidi women to Germany, or ISIS survivors, not just women. Uh, We all wrote our names. Uh, for the program, we registered. Uh, I came first, and then after a few months, my mother and my brothers also came. Ferida talks about how grateful she is for this experience, because first of all, 
uh, if she stayed in Iraq, she wouldn't have been able to speak up and tell her story. She traveled to more than 20 countries and she has told her story over and over again. Uh, also, she got reunited with her family here. And if Germany haven't had done this for us, we, I wouldn't have been able to tell my story and speak up for myself and for the other Yazidi woman. How does it feel to be a voice for so many people? I mean, that must feel like a big responsibility, right? Uh, I do advocacy, but I'm not alone. There are other girls who do the same, for example, Nadia and Lamia as well. Here, Farida refers to Nadia Murad who Adrian mentioned earlier, the most famous of the Yazidi community after she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2018, putting the Yazidi genocide on the map for many people. Our goal, our main goal is to uh, prevent anything like this to happen, not just to any Yazidis, but to any human. It's hard, it's tiring to keep trying and speaking up over and over again in order to get support and recognize what happened to the Yazidis and show the world who Yazidis are and our story and what we went through. But it's a really good and rewarding feeling when we accomplish something, even if it's small. And no matter how hard I work, I still feel like I could do more and more for my people. Frida, I think what you're doing is amazing. And I've told everybody to read your book. How did you decide to write a book? When we were captivated with ISIS, all the girls, when we were talking, they said we could never tell what happened to us to anybody. We can never share this story. I always said, if I ever get out of here, I will tell this story. I will tell my story. So when I was in the camp in Iraq, I met a woman called Andrea Hoffman, who is a German journalist. And we together decided to write this book when I was still in Iraq and we finished it when I was in Germany. Wow. Was it difficult to tell her your whole story, I guess, for the first time, right, in detail? It's a very hard feeling to remember everything over and over again. And every time it's like that, whenever I have to say my story, it's like dying. It's like reliving the whole situation again, all the captivity, the rape, the torture, the beating. It never leaves my mind. And I feel, imagine myself in those places over and over again. Whenever I tell my story, it's like reliving the whole situation again. Farida, I'm appreciative, as I say, so much for you sharing this because I think it's so important that the world does know what happens to you and what happened to these Yazidi people. And I hope that through education, this never repeats itself, not just for the Yazidi people, but for everybody in the world. This is, this is our goal. No matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, we want to de- deliver a message And we will deliver that message no matter what. So this podcast will be released on the 3rd of August, 2020, the six-year anniversary of the Yazidi genocide. What does this day mean for you? This was a very difficult day for us. I was captivated for four months and I went through something I never imagined I would go through. I always think about the other women and the girls that were with me. Those who were captivated for longer and longer, maybe for six years even. 
how how did they survive what they are doing and then i think about other, our azd people they are still living in really hard conditions in iraq in tents and refugee camps so this day always takes us back it takes us back to everything that happened to us in the process and where are we right now are there still women who are still captured Yes, until this day, we believe there are more than 3,000 people that are still captivated with ISIS. Wow, we have to put that right. There's still work to do, right? That's also something that we want to do. We want to help those people who are still captivated escape. Although we know a lot of them have probably died, but the rest who are still alive, we really hope to bring them back. I want to um, finish with something beautiful that I read that since you've been in Germany, you got married. Yes, I got married. Actually, after coming to Germany, a lot of things have changed in my life. I started doing my advocacy work. I learned the German language. I got married. I do my professional training to become a dentist assistant. I also started my own organization right now. It's called Farida Global Organization. And we also have started a campaign for the memorial of the genocide. That's 3rd of August. But also, no matter how much I have done and where I am in life, it's impossible to forget the memories and the hard times that I've been through. So everything like knowing that my brothers and my dad is not there, it's still a big part of my life. And whenever remembering that, it's definitely hard to compare how my life used to be and how it is now. Do you find it hard when people don't understand, like in Germany, in your new life, what you have been through? It's definitely hard because if you haven't gone through something, you will never fully understand it. But still, whenever we try or I try to explain what I've been through in my situation to German people. I feel like they are very understanding and they listen and they are compassionate. Also, a lot of people already know what happened to Yazidis or who Yazidis are. My book, a lot of people, I have met a lot of people who have read my book and they already know the whole story and what has happened. But not just German, anybody from anywhere who haven't been through what we have been through, we always have to explain to them, tell them in details what happened. Yeah, I can imagine that's very difficult. Farida, like, how do you feel at the moment? Are you happy? Is there a psychological impact? I mean, I'm sure there is. Have you had psychological support? I'm good now. I have been going to therapy. It's good, but still something is always missing. As I said before, those women who were with me there are still on my thoughts. The Yazidi people are still on my thought. I would only genuinely be good when the Yazidis get international protection, when the Yazidi genocide is internationally recognized, when I'm sure that Nothing like this will happen ever again. But for now, even though I'm doing okay, but still something is missing. 
Well, Farida, I am with you. I am behind you. And I just want to ask you, what does the future have in store for you? Before, my dream was to be a math teacher. But now that dream has changed. My dream is to see ISIS members being in court and getting punished to what they did to us in my community. I am also hoping to finish my house building and everything. And I'm hoping life will be good. But I will only be good when I know my people are also doing good. What's an house building? Alice Bildum is a training. As I told you, she's doing a training to become a, a dentist assistant in Germany. That's called an Alice Bildung. You study for a few years, so you would be able to professionally work as a, in her case, dentist assistant. Very cool. And yeah, I think that's an amazing goal and an amazing dream. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we finish? My hopes for the Yazidi future is we still live in we are still living in camps. My hope is that our villages and our camps will rebuild, be rebuilt again, and that we could finally live normal lives again, and that these mass graves will be open. And also, would like to be recognized and respected as a religion in Iraq and in the world, and to get protection. I see a lot of Yazidi people who went to good colleges, who have good degrees, but still. They don't have the equal opportunity in Iraq to get jobs as everybody else there. So for me, when I see those people uh, are having their rights and our religion is respected and we are respected as every other religion in Iraq and around the world, then I will be happy. Would you like to go back to Iraq one day? I do not have trust in Iraq anymore. All my neighbors who are Muslims who used to came to the aid for to our house, they were also the same people who joined ISIS and killed them. I don't know, maybe I would go someday, but for now I could not say I would go back because there's no future for me. And if there, there's no future for somebody somewhere, they cannot live. So why would I go back to somewhere where I lost all of my trust in the people and in the system? And was the reason that all of this happened to me? Or the place, sorry, not the reason, but the place where all of this happened to me. I understand. Uh, is there anything else that anyone listening to this podcast and listening to your words can do? I know reading your book is a very good start, but is there any other ways that people can educate themselves or learn about the Yazidi people? Any other advice that you might have? I want the people to know that Yazidi are a peaceful community. The Yazidi religion is a peaceful religion. We have never hurt anybody in our history. And I want people to know that. I want that everybody who could help the Yazidi people to help us because we need a lot of help, especially to get our genocide recognized internationally to prevent anything like this to happen again throughout the next generations. Well, Farida, thank you so much for sharing your story today. I know that it's not easy and I appreciate you for doing this. It's a pleasure. Also, I hope that we can meet in real life one day. I, when, when it's easier to travel again, I'll come to Germany and hopefully we can meet. Whenever you come, you're very welcome. Hopefully we get to see each other again. Amazing. In person. Thank you so much, Farida. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. 
I'm sure you'll agree that Farida's bravery and strength in sharing this story is absolutely incredible and that justice must be done to right the fact that so many of the perpetrators of these crimes towards the Yazidi women still walk free. Imagine knowing that the people who inflicted so much pain on you and the people around you are just living life as normal. You can help us in amplifying Farida's story by sharing this episode with your friends and family to mark this important occasion, the six-year anniversary of the Yazidi genocide, in the hope that, as Adrian mentioned right at the start, this devastating history will never repeat itself. The more people come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become, and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode.